Man, Jay, Charles Xavier certainly does seem to leave a trail of broken hearts. Moira McTaggart, Amelia Vogt, Lalandra. Not to mention the guy he built the X-Mansion and planned the team with. What, Magneto? Cable. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 391 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to all the Nathans that are fit to Nathan. Well, not all of them. Okay, two of the Nathans that are arguably fit to Nathan. Do you really think Nate Gray is fit to Nathan? I mean, it depends on who you ask. Overall, I mean, some people like him. I, You know, okay, so we're going to be covering an issue of X-Men today and three issues of Cable, two comics that we don't normally cover, um, but they tie into Operation Zero Tolerance, so we are. And it's actually always really fun to just drop into X-Men because every time we do, I have to remind myself of what happened to get to that point because every time we do, it's just like, what the hell is going on with the status quo of this character? Every time. It's a delight. The answer is, of course, always a lot. So on that note, maybe we should check in with both of our Nathans and see what they've been up to leading up to, as you said, this point. So, Nathan Christopher Charles Ascani Sun Day Spring Summers is the— We might have to do the quick version, because otherwise that's going to be the whole episode. Uh, Okay, good point. Nathan Summers, also known as Cable, is the son of Cyclops and the clone of Jean Grey. He's not a clone of Jean Grey. His mother is a clone of Jean Grey. Yeah, Madeline Pryor. After getting infected with the techno-organic virus as a baby, Nathan was taken to the future by a time traveler to be healed, where he grew up into this cyborg soldier named Cable. Uh, And was raised for 12 years of that by Cyclops and Jean Grey, unstuck in time. It gets complicated. It was a great series. We did a winter special about it. Anyway, Cable came back to the present for reasons that vary depending on whom you ask. But regardless, he ended up taking command of the next generation of X-Men, the New Mutants, and molding them into the more 90s-friendly big guns, big muscles, X-Force. X-Force has had many members, in addition to many muscles and many guns. And one of those members is Caliban, a former mutant outcast, one of the Morlocks. Caliban's been having a bad time of it lately. He's had fluctuations in his intelligence, he's been having seizures, general weirdness. So, even though X-Force, the team, is off dealing with the Mutant Liberation Front and Operation Zero Tolerance, and the X-Men are half in space and half dealing with Operation Zero Tolerance, Caliban is still in the otherwise empty X-Mansion, where Cable's basically looking after him. Okay, you said Operation Zero Tolerance twice, so let's talk about them. Okay, so Operation Zero Tolerance, in addition to the name of the event that we are currently in the midst of, is a militant and powerful international anti-mutant organization. Um, They have human size and human-derived prime sentinels. They are led by a guy named Bastion, who we just learned in Gen X is kind of a robot himself, and they wear very snazzy black and pink uniforms. Well, most of them do. We'll get to that. So, that thing we were saying about doing the short version of Cable's story, well, there's also Nate Gray. Nate Gray is another version of Nathan Summers, Cable, from another universe, this time the Age of Apocalypse, Earth-295. 
This one is a teenager instead of a grizzled old man, and he's got very floppy hair, and because he was never infected with that techno-organic virus that our cable was, his natural psionic powers, his telepathy and telekinesis, aren't always busy keeping a virus in check, and thus he is a very, 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 very powerful psychic. Now, Nate Gray escaped the Age of Apocalypse when that world seemingly ended, finding himself in the main Marvel Universe, Earth-616. And since getting there, he's mostly run around getting in misunderstanding-based fights with everyone he runs into. And that includes Cable. Because since they're kind of the same person, Cable and Nate, having psychic proximity to one another, gives them both nosebleeds and very bad headaches. Like, very bad headaches. This is specific to them. It's not something we've seen with regards to any other clones or twins with with psychic powers, most notably Emma Frost and the Cuckoos. Yeah, it's got something to do with the way that they were both genetically engineered by Sinister in specific directions and also psychic stuff in general. It's very complicated, and that thing you said about not wanting to have the previously on session take up the whole episode? Well, you know, that. Which brings us to Cable number 45, Moving Target Part 1, No Escape. Written by James Robinson, penciled by Randy Green, inked by Scott Hanna, colored by Mike Thomas, lettered by Richard Starkings, and Comicraft and Albert Deschain. Whoa, James Robinson, we know him. That's the guy who wrote Starman. Yeah, uh, listeners, we've mentioned this before, but the 90s DC comic Starman, written by James Robinson, is an incredibly good comic My first tattoo is actually from that comic. It's this wonderful meditation on legacy and fathers and sons, and it's just a beautiful, beautiful comic, and you should read it. Uh, A while back, DC put out these really nice big collections, like these six volumes that collect the whole series. I think they're still in print, but uh, they're great. You should read them. Out of print, but um, I actually kind of prefer the trade paperbacks just because they're more wranglable. Yeah, that's true. Great big hardcovers are um, heavy, and they make your legs go numb. But the point here is that Starman is is really a phenomenal series, and um, it's the one that James Robinson is best known for by far and away, so it's always interesting to see his name pop up on, well, things that aren't Starman and that I therefore don't closely associate him with. Uh, Yeah, this is one of his earliest issues of Cable. He wrote two before this. Number 44 was about the Hellfire Club, and then Minus One had some stuff, but most importantly brought back Angus McWhorter, the angriest hovercraft salesman ever. What? Um, But... Yeah, 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 Angus is in there. It's a flashback, you know, before he died and then became an angry ghost. Uh, But this is James Robinson's first full arc on Cable. Uh, Later on, in fact, right after this arc, Jose Ladrone will be taking over art duties, and Ladrone's art is amazing. I heard him described as, like, Mobius with a dash of Jack Kirby, which is accurate. And the Damn. comic goes, yeah, like, this arc is, is you know, it, it's all right. It's pretty good. But once Ladrone joins James Robinson, like, that alchemy makes the book. So what do we think of Robinson on Cable? I, I find him kind of a mixed bag. His Cable, or his Cable, the comic book, is just unbelievably wordy. Yeah, and we're saying that as people who have read a lot of Chris Claremont. There is a lot of dialogue and narration. And I and again, I think I think this might be as much a product of, of the artwork that the dialogue and narration feel often like they're moving at a slightly different pace than the action. Yeah, I get that. And there is a lot of action. I mean, this three-issue arc here, Moving Target, the Operation Zero Tolerance tie-in for Cable, is kind of an action movie. Like, it's a lot of fighting, a lot of sneaking, a lot of talking about fighting and sneaking. 
Right. The next handful of issues, the ones we're covering today, are basically Home Alone meets Die Hard starring Cable. Um, Honestly, we could probably leave it at that and all go on with our lives, but we're committed, so onward we go. And these also all take place between X-Force number 67 and 69, which we covered very recently. Right, because remember in that X-Force Operation Zero Tolerance arc, there were a lot of little cutaways to Cable and Caliban in the mansion, and so this fills in the gaps between all of those scenes. Or those scenes fill in the gap between these scenes? I guess it's a matter of perspective. So we open with Cable shooting his way through the Operation Zero Tolerance guards on the Xavier Institute lawn before faking his own death in an explosion like the true disciple of Xavier he is. Oh man, talking about Robinson's writing though, uh, Jay, would you do us the honor of reproducing this delightful intro narration? His fingers, nimble like a pianist's, pull triggers faster than the ants can blink. He spits words of contempt at them to compliment his volley, though none here would understand them. Yeah! Uh, The reason that these soldiers are referred to as ants is not because they are literally ants, but because Cable says this reminds him of the Siege of the Vapor Ants, which was apparently a battle that he had in his future, and I don't know what that's about, but that sounds amazing. Yes, yes it does. What's also amazing is some of the art details. Like, uh, Randy Green is a good artist. Randy's cable art here is is good. But my favorite little detail is that when we see Cable hiding in the bushes before the fight, he has three grenades on a bandolier across his chest, and they are labeled one, two, and three. Like, do they have different purposes? Are those codes? Or is that just the order he intends to use them in? And, And what if he uses them in the wrong order? What if he uses two first? Does he do one next? Or three next? Does this ruin his day? They're they're not the order he plans to use them. They're they're order of, of, of quality. Like one one is the best one. And then two is okay, and three is kind of his shitty backup grenade. Oh, okay. So if he encounters like a really crappy villain, like I don't know, Trevor fucking Fitzroy, he just tosses three at him and then holds up a middle finger. Alternately, um it's a ranking of how much he loves them. Oh, oh. So it, the first grenade is clearly his favorite, and like the third grenade has kind of an inferiority complex. Yeah. Yeah. He he labels them with the numbers to encourage them to compete among themselves. I mean, we already know how his son Tyler turned out. Uh, I'm glad he became a better father figure by the time Hope Summers rolled around. Anyway, alas for for Cable, um, Bastion knows how X-Folks work, and he knows that because there's not a body, that means Cable is definitely alive and definitely up to some trouble. So... Going back a bit, Cable is here in the first place because G.W. Bridge, who's currently the head or one of the heads or very high up in S.H.I.E.L.D., tipped Cable off to some major, major problems. Um, Bridge is, of course, in addition to being in charge of S.H.I.E.L.D., uh, Cable's old mercenary buddy. Yeah, who sometimes is very, very grumpy at him for being an outlaw, and other times they're buddy-buddy. James Robinson writes them as much more buddy-buddy. They have a complicated relationship. So Bridge's first tip-off is that someone from the Hellfire Club has it in for Cable. That's not going to be relevant for now. You can forget that for the time being. But in the bar where Cable, you know, gets this call from from Bridge is a television broadcasting the early events of OZT, and that prompts Cable to head to a safe house from which he calls Bridge again. And then Bridge lets Cable know that Operation Zero Tolerance has its sights on the Xavier Institute. And we've seen that in other comics, and the Xavier Institute, as we alluded to at the beginning of the episode, is pretty much empty right now. Like, X-Force is out on a mission, half of the X-Men are out on a mission, and the other half are in space. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's not great. 
Wildly, Bridge still has no idea that Xavier has any connection to the X-Men. Yeah, remember, Xavier wouldn't even fully come out as a mutant until Grant Morrison's run. Like, there was that scene at the beginning of Executioner's Song where Xavier was just speaking as a human who knew a lot about genetics and was an activist for mutant rights. Yeah, and that's what he's known as publicly um, within this universe. Although I would expect that after Onslaught, like, S.H.I.E.L.D. would be aware. Uh, You'd think, yeah. I mean, you know, he was picked up also by Val Cooper, who knows the secret, and she's, you know, very much a part of the government that S.H.I.E.L.D. is kind of also a part of. You know, I kind of like this, though, because as in the real world, the government is composed of many, many, many organizations with poor communication skills and sometimes with competing agendas. So just because, say, Val Cooper and the government folks involved in Operation Zero Tolerance know that Xavier was Onslaught and is a mutant— doesn't mean that other people do. Speaking of wild details that get dropped in this issue, Cable apparently helped Professor X build the X-Mansion in the first place. Um, that was explored, or will have been explored at more length than Cable minus one. Uh, we'll get to those much later. Um, but also, based on Cable's um, thought balloons, it appears that he and Xavier may have had a star-crossed romance during that time. This building, I said, it's beautiful. Beautiful, yes, Xavier replied, but I want to make it better. I want to make it like nothing the world has seen. I can help you, Charles, I told him. I can give you science this world won't see for two millennia. And in return, Xavier taught me how to live in a past I could never have hoped to grasp otherwise. He taught me philosophy and Shakespeare and beer. He taught me that I was a mutant, but I was also a man. If only I could have been more truthful with him about who I really was. Things may have gone differently. They definitely did sex, right? I'm pretty sure. I mean, Cable talks about how the mansion is kind of a temple to him because it's where his father grew to become a man. But I'm just saying a lot of people were becoming men in a lot of different ways here at various points in time. So Cable, like any proper infiltrator, heads in through the vents and he starts by taking out the guards outside the room where Caliban is. Unfortunately, this both alerts OZT to his location and effectively pins the two of them down, and the issue ends with Cable and Caliban bursting out, guns ablazing into a hallway full of guards. And okay, we'll get to where that goes, but first off, I've never been in like a ventilation shaft. Have, have you, Jay? I have not. I always wonder how realistic that is. Like, they don't seem that big. Like, the ducts I've seen don't really seem like they could hold someone massive like Cable, or even necessarily hold the weight of anyone. Oh, I've got no prize explanation for that. Oh, yeah? Cable helped design the X-Mansion. Of course he designed it so that he could effectively infiltrate it. Oh, that's a good point! Like, you know, there are certain standardized sizes for different types of appliances and building materials, and he chose the Nathan Charles Christopher Dayspring Ascani Sun Summers size of ducts. Uh, otherwise known as beefy. <laughs> yes, beefy-sized. And that brings us to Cable number 46, Moving Target Part 2, Siege. Written again by James Robinson, penciled by Randy Green, and this time also Stephen Harris and Diodato Studio, inked by Scott Hanna and Diodato Studio, colored by Mike Thomas, and lettered by Richard Starkingston Comicraft and Albert Deshane. Our opening narration kind of rung a bell for me. What's happening? And why? Two questions to be asked in light of this scene. Long or short version? Long? Yeah, we call that Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men. 
Yeah, it is. It is not very, um, not not very stirring opening narration. I gotta say. So we open with the big fight that was promised at the end of last issue, and Ranty Green and the rest of the art team. They have a really fun, appealingly simple style. Like, this issue is kind of led on backgrounds, but everything is very clear and clean and easy to follow, which is so important if you're going to have a fight scene actually be engaging. I hate Cable's floppy hair. Yeah, Nate Gray has floppy hair. Cable has, like, I don't know, wiry, short, grizzled hair. Yes. Yeah. Maybe um, maybe when he met Nate in a recent issue of X-Men, Nate shared some product with him, and like it would totally work for Cable because they're genetically identical, apparently. I just don't buy it. Yeah, that doesn't seem like Cable's style. He would see like his hair blocking his peripheral vision as being a flaw on the battlefield. I'm kind of surprised he let Hope Summers have long hair, or not just, you know, in a, be in a bun all the time. Eh, they do things differently in the several hundred future timelines they lived in. Mm, guess so, guess so. So Caliban presses an activator button that Cable gave him a little bit before, and suddenly giant spiky balls fall out of the walls and smash into all of the bright purple and red clad soldiers. I guess they're not high enough rank to wear the black and pink. And um, and Jesus, that seems like really genuinely murderous, which makes me wonder, because these are balls from the danger room, like, how have there not been more maimings in the danger room? Like, I don't think there have really been any. Yeah, that remains shocking. There are freaking fire bars and spiked balls and buzz saws and stuff. The danger room is such a bad idea. Like, no matter how you parse it, it's a really, really, really bad idea. But, you know, I gotta give it one thing. Oh? Accurate name. Yeah, yeah, it is what it says on the tin. But this brings me right back to an issue you may also remember, Jay. Uh, Uncanny X-Men number 308, the flashback to Teen Scott and Teen Jean being all awkward together. Because in that scene, Jean interrupts him while he's on a ladder shoving spiked balls into compartments in the walls of the danger room. Like, preparing it for the next time that a bunch of teenagers are almost going to get maimed and murdered. The worst room. Just the worst room. Yeah, don't go in there. Although, these days, there's an even more dangerous danger room in X-Force, like in the Krakoan era, so also don't go in there. Don't go into any of the danger rooms. Don't go into the danger grotto. Don't go, just don't. Just stay out of them. Aw, but, but the danger grotto has a treehouse where Artie and Leech live. You know what else it has? Danger? Danger. Valid. Well, Bastion and his purple and red men picked themselves up from that danger. Apparently nobody died, they were all just injured, and search around. And there is this great full page of these six horizontal panels of various empty rooms in the X-Mansion. There's the library, the war room, the dining room, the swimming pool, one bedroom, another bedroom. Like, it really gets across that this is home to so many people. Like, people actually live here. This isn't just a base of a bunch of soldiers. Like... This is the home of these characters we know and love that is now being invaded by these terrible, terrible people. There really is this feeling of violation that's conveyed beautifully. So the OCT guys don't find Cable and Caliban because they have escaped to the pitch-black Morlock tunnels. Yeah, there are these two fully black panels, and then one where Cable illuminates a light and you can see their faces. It's, it's kind of nice. Caliban isn't so sure about this plan. Why have we come here, Cable Nathan? It reminds me of lost friends, of being alone and afraid. Because remember, 
Caliban is a former Morlock. He lived in these tunnels with his friends for years, and most of them were murdered in the mutant massacre. Cable decides to go back to seal the tunnel behind them so that these soldiers can't find them. Caliban's still too weak to come along and is kind of afraid, and so they start to bid their farewells, and Caliban says some stuff that's been on his mind. You never treated me like a worst-case sorry mutie. You made me a part of X-Force. Accepted me. Caliban has never thanked you for that. He thanks you now. Cable Nathan, will you remember me? Remember you? Always. I really like Robinson's Caliban. I do too, 100%. I was thinking that also. Like, we saw Caliban become that kind of... When Jeff Loeb took over Cable and X-Force both, Caliban became this kind of gentle giant stereotype. Like, he was extremely childlike and not intelligent at all and very naive. And so here we still get this character whose, you know, mind isn't amazing after all he's been through, and was never the cleverest character out there, but he actually feels like a person, not just an archetype. Yeah. Well, a bunch of shitty Operation Zero Tolerance troops are guarding the computer room racistly, hoping that Cable shows. Uh, one of them actually mentions that uh, one of those filthy muties cut up his brother, and the other one's like, dude, isn't your brother an arms dealer? And the first one's like, well, yeah, but that doesn't mean that guy should have cut him up. And I don't know, on the one hand, Wolverine probably does cut up a lot of people who do not deserve to be cut up, but... But... What I really want to talk about here is what Cable does next, because it is extraordinarily silly. It is extraordinarily silly! Yes, he smashes up through the floor, like, fist first, and then just grabs each of the soldiers one by one and pulls them down. Like, he's some kind of fucking mole man. It's amazing, he just keeps doing it. It's like what Batman does, but way sillier and way more destructive. Well, and he smashes up through the floor each time. Like, he's not just pulling them all into the same hole that he smashed through. He's doing this again and again and again. Yeah, like, one time he does it and grabs two dudes, but there are at least six giant goddamn Nathan Summers-sized holes, which is to say beefy-sized holes, that's a phrase, in the ground. I, I just, it, it just seems like such a waste of energy. It totally is! And, like, okay, I know Rogue did this when the X-Men in space fought the Phalanx very recently, but she did it, like, once. Also, Rogue has super strength and flight. Uh, yeah, Cable is just a large, beefy man. Well, he's a large, beefy telekinetic man, which may be helping him out some here. I guess so, but it's just such a great idea. Like, he just got done talking about how the X-Mansion was sort of a temple to him. It had so much spiritual and, like, emotional meaning. And here he is just smashing the living shit out of it in the most excessive possible fashion. So, once he's got control of, of the, the now heavily perforated computer room, Cable checks the logs and discovers that Bastion downloaded all the files, but the only ones he got unencrypted and readable are the Cerebro files. Which means that he's basically just got, like, 300 hours of Connor Goldsmith talking in detail about X-Men. Oh, that's a pretty good find, actually. Right? I mean, like, it's not what he was going for, but it's pro honestly, it's probably got better detail- more detailed information than, than anything that would have existed in the books at this point. 
I really do appreciate that, you know, ex-podcasts like us and Cerebro and all the other great ones out there, or really just any super specialized podcast, probably has more detailed information than, like, the actual people working on the books at the time, if I may be slightly immodest. Like, I know we get stuff wrong uh, sometimes, but, God, we've covered a lot. Yeah, like, we have, well, we have the entirety of of Web 2.0 at our fingertips, and that makes an unbelievable difference in in terms of the degree of intricacy with which we can engage with massive volumes of continuity although man sometimes i'll hear about somebody in a fictional universe like i think the star wars universe had one whose entire job it is to keep continuity straight and that sounds like so much fun maybe it's the kind of job like being a video game tester where it sounds fun but ends up crappy but like I would love to just immerse myself completely in Marvel Universe continuity and have that be my job so I could really focus on it. Having done that for more limited fictional universes, I think it would both be incredibly fun and a very, very quick road to burnout. That may be true. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Uh, But anyway, Cerebro, both podcast and uh, computer system aside— Bastion also grabbed copies of data on the Mutant Underground, on the Danger Room, and he grabbed the Xavier Protocols, Professor X's plans that were revealed in Onslaught about how to kill any X-Men if they went bad. So, that's not good. What makes it slightly better is that apparently the computer managed to scramble the files by encrypting them in Shi'ar-Ease. Is Shi'ar-Ease really the name of the Shi'ar language? That's silly. I'm pretty sure the language is just Shi'ar. Shi'ar-Ease. James Robinson, you wrote Starman really well, but that's silly. I don't like it. So Cable grabs his own copies of all of the files and deletes the originals. Which is kind of like what Banshee did during the Phalanx Covenant on Mirror Island. This is hard, though. I mean, he flashes back to a conversation he had with Cyclops, with his father. This is the room where they talked about how... In the future, which is Cable's past, Scott and Jean raised Cable, even though they were disguised as different people in different bodies. Like, there's so much history here, and between that panel of all the different empty rooms in the X-Mansion and this, this issue does a pretty decent job at just getting across how important this building is to so many people, to their histories, to their stories. Yeah, that sense of connection and the sense of sort of the value and history in this place are very, very, very well developed here. Although, let's be real, this building has been blown up, like, at least a couple times by this point, and will be blown up at least a couple more, so we kind of have a Mansion of Theseus thing going on here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, Cable realizes during all this, wait a minute... Bastion and Operation Zero Tolerance got unencrypted Cerebro files. Cerebro contains a listing of all of the mutants it knows about and, like, all the details about them, including their families. Oh, shit. That would include his family, Scott Summers and Jean Grey's families. And he's got no time to act on this himself, but he does have a psychic link to someone who might be available. That being Nate Grey, who is sleeping on a couch 50 miles south. And this is not ideal. As we mentioned, Cable and Nate are so psychically similar, and have other complicated reasons, that whenever they contact each other telepathically, it's extremely painful, and there is blood flying out of noses like it's freaking Eleven in Stranger Things. But it does work. Cable is able to get in touch with Nate and get Nate to say, yes, he'll, he'll go check on, on the Grays. But that has cost Cable valuable time, and given Operation Zero Tolerance time to blow the door... But it's not a bunch of red and purple soldiers that come in guns blazing, it's just Bastion himself. 
in his black and pink, and he just wants to talk. And that brings us to cable number 47, Moving Target Part 3, Man to Man. And quite literally, face to face. You can only say that when he's talking to Strife. I know, it just remains one of the greatest lines in all of X-Men ever. Oh, absolutely. And as previously, this is written by James Robinson, penciled by Rob Haynes, inked by Scott Hanna, colored by Mike Thomas, and lettered by Richard Starkings in Comicraft and Albert Duchesne. And this takes place between X-Force 69 and 70, um, shortly before Cable is going to be brainwashed by Ozymandias into abandoning Caliban. So, Jay, what do we think about this? What do we think about the way that the Cable and Caliban segments in X-Force and all of the segments in Cable's own comic intersect? Because there's not actually a lot of overlap. Like, to get the full story, you kind of have to read both. Yeah, I mean, I think it would be... It would have been good to have the Ozymandias bit in Cable. Yeah, I, I agree, because that's such a big deal. Like, Cable's main goal here, and aside from just, you know, keeping all the files and stuff safe, is to save his friend Caliban. And the fact that that resolves in such a tragic, like, twisting-the-knife way in X-Force and isn't even mentioned here, that's not ideal. No. So, we left off with Bastion coming in just to talk, and Cable doesn't have much use for what Bastion has to say. He would just as soon shoot him. But Bastion makes a compelling point. Specifically, if he dies, his followers have instructions to set off a multi-generational genocide of mutants and their families, which they can pull off because, again, he's got the unencrypted cerebrophiles. And we've seen something like this before. Uh, Back in the Phalanx Covenant, the Phalanx were going after the next generation of mutants. They were specifically tracking down mutant children— And that's kind of what we're seeing here, in addition to mutant families, period. I also want to talk about the art here, because Randy Green drew Bastion as calm and confident in the last page of the last issue. Or Randy Green and the art team, I guess it was an art team of more people. But here, Rob Haynes draws Bastion very differently. Here, Bastion is just barely peeking out of the doorway, sort of gesturing anxiously at Cable. And he looks much more human. Like... Haynes draws Bastion with this very expressive human face with irises in his eyes and pupils instead of blank eyes. That makes him a lot less intimidating and a lot more of just a person. Yeah, I I like Bastion seeming somewhat inhuman. I think that's really important. Agreed, yeah. Or at least most of the time, just so if he ever does seem human, that comes off as more of a contrast. One of the things that makes Bastion scary here, though, is that he knows who Cable is, which really throws Cable off balance. I know that you're the son of Scott Summers, the X-Men's leader. I know that somehow you were taken as an infant into the future, and that you've returned to the present as a man. I know that in the future time you were trained on the battlefields to be the greatest soldier your era could produce— And I'm aware that you must sacrifice much of your telepathic power to hold in check the techno-organic virus that ravages your system. Ah, so you've been listening to Jay and Miles explain the X-Men. You're here on some mission that you and you alone are cognizant of. That is a mystery I've yet to solve, I admit. Bastion, don't feel bad. That is incredibly inconsistent. It really depends on who's writing. Sometimes it's all about Cannonball and the external. Sometimes it's all about Strife. Just, Just don't worry about it, buddy. But as Bastion's talking about all this, he's ticking off the things he knows about Cable on his fingers. There's a close-up of that, and that is chilling. That is such a human, casual gesture. Like, I think that would work a lot better if that were contrasted with Bastion seeming inhuman the rest of the time, you know? Yeah, absolutely agreed. 
Now, Bastion is also stalling for time, and Cable telepathically picks up on soldiers getting ready to burst out and attack. And in response, he blows some shit up and jumps down an elevator shaft or possibly up some stairs. It is not entirely clear. Either way, though, he takes Bastion with him. And they fight and they fight and they fight, and Cable realizes that Bastion is definitely not human. What are you? A man. Nothing more. Bastion really thinks of himself that way, and we know he's not, and he knows he's not, but even so, that's how committed he is to this pro-human crusade he's on. Now, Cable gets the upper hand, and he uses Bastion as a hostage to get back to the hallway, and then he does something that is very, very, very uncharacteristic of Cable. He telepathically, temporarily wipes the minds of all of the OZT soldiers on the premises. Yeah, Cable can't normally use his psychic powers to this extent. Like, normally they have to be dedicated to keeping his virus in check, or else he'll, you know, die. Well, and even now, it's a tremendous, tremendous strain that effectively takes him out of the fight. Yeah, and I love that about Cable. Specifically Cable, this version of Nathan Summers. Like, he's got that power, but he can't really use it except when things are desperate, which always makes it clear how desperate the situation is when he does use those powers. It kind of reminds me of a role-playing game that you and I played in and that I years later ran called Orpheus, where you can tap into your dark side as like a ghosty projector person, but the more you do, the more it like permanently screws you up. So there's always the constant question of, is it worth it? Are these desperate circumstances really worth potentially permanently damaging myself and putting myself one step closer to oblivion? And that's Bastion's question as well. What's to stop me from bringing my men back? What's preventing me from retaking the mansion? Your men will be out of commission for more than a while. You'd better have patience. There's another reason, too. I think, because you weren't affected by my psychic wipe, I'm... On to you, Bastion. I'm not sure what you are, but I know you're not a normal human. Whatever your true nature, that will come to light too. With Cable weakened to the point of collapse, Bastion manages to grab the gun and shoot him, only to discover that the gun that Cable was using to control him was empty the whole time. Cable blacks out, and when he comes to, Bastion and all of the purple and red OZT soldiers are gone. We get um, that detail over beers and denouement with GW Bridge. Okay, so about that scene, I love the idea of Cable and Bridge catching up at a bar, but if you look at the art, GW Bridge is drinking this giant goddamn stein full of beer, and there are three empties next to him. That is so much beer. Like, I know he's a giant Liefeld dude, and I am a relatively tiny human, but that would literally kill me. Yeah, but he is a giant Liefeld dude. I mean, I guess... I don't know. Maybe it's lemonade. Maybe it's Arnold Palmer's. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's go for that. Maybe maybe it's non-alcoholic beer. Well, regardless of what it is, he's going to have to get up to pee like forty times. He has the bladder of ten men. Oh man, I wonder if his bladder is super impressive. Like Rob Liefeld's various muscles are super impressive. If that's just built into him because Liefeld designed him. Yeah. Oh, well done. Finally, the arc ends with Donald Pierce in Boston stewing over Cable existing. I guess that's the Hellfire Club guy who had it in for him. And if we were following Cable, we would follow up that plot, but we're not, so we won't. Instead, let's get our hair nice and floppy and move on to X-Man number 30, Coming Home. Written by Terry Cavanaugh, penciled by Roger Cruz and Carrie Nord, inked by Bud LaRosa and Wellington Diaz, colored by Tom Vincent, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft, and Albert 
to Shane. Because remember, Cable put out a call for help to Nate Gray. So Nate awakens shirtlessly, which is how he does many things, in the living room of three exceptionally radical ladies. We have... Jam, a kind, down-to-earth pale woman with blonde hair and a bare midriff. Bucks, a spiritual hippie woman with red hair and a bare midriff, who's chanting tantric prayers over Nate. And Rita, a cold, badass woman with darker skin and a bare midriff. All three of them are wearing sunglasses indoors and are very hot. The sunglasses are how you can tell that they're also cool. Hot and cool. How do they do it? So how did Nate get into the clutches of these attractive women who all think he's great? I mean, that's pretty much how he spends his entire series. In the clutches of attractive women who all think he's great. Yeah, between them and Threnody and the clone interdimensional alternate reality kind of ghost of his resurrected alternate universe dead mom. Oh, that part's complicated. So in this specific case, uh, he got manipulated into joining Havoc's Brotherhood, but then turned against them when they were too evil, and they just about killed him with poison gas, but he escaped their death trap after hallucinating a bunch and then passed out, and he has woken up here. He has indeed. But no time for love, Dr. Jones, because this is where Cable's telepathic call from Cable number 46 occurs. So here, of course, Nate agrees to help the Greys. Partially for Jean Grey, because he's connected with her in Earth-616, and he did in Earth-295 as well, but also partially because Joey, who is one of Jean's nibblings, is holding a teddy bear that reminds Nate of the one he had in X-Men Minus One the month before. This is an image that Cable projects to show Nate who he's trying to save. Once he has agreed to save them, Nate passes out for a couple more days. And that's not great, because Cable told the Greys to go to Nate's Soho loft to, like, meet him to be safe, and Nate's unconscious, so he's not there. So they're going to show up and be all alone while being chased by Operation Zero Tolerance. Now, Nate is not there, but there is there is someone who is there to be confronted by the Prime Sentinels who show up, and that is, is a kid named Rouse, who, as far as I can tell, is visiting from Victorian London for the weekend. And we, we meet him being chased outside Nate's apartment by two prime sentinels. And saying, Don't know what you two toods in a can are babbling about, Rusty! And dis little rouse don't wanna know! So I'll just catch yous all later, okay? Literally no one on Earth has ever talked like that. I love Roust so much. Like, in the comic, he was hanging out in the sewers with Abomination and a bunch of Abomination's allies. And so, like, I guess he hasn't been exposed day-to-day to society, but that doesn't mean he should be stuck as, like, a stereotypical Charles Dickens orphan mixed with a gangster. Like, what the hell? He, he dresses like a Victorian urchin. It's great! Like, I appreciate that the comic is like, I don't know, we should just have a Victorian urchin. Those are fun characters. But it's modern times, writer. Meh, let's have one anyway. Uh, thankfully for Rouse, John Gray, um, definitely at his most muscular ever, good lord, uh, shows up just in time to save Rouse from the collapsing floor, and he's there with Joey and Galen. Okay, so, Robot Gray roll call here. So, Jean's parents are John and Elaine Gray. We've met them before, the time I always remember is during the Phoenix Saga, when they get freaked out by what's going on. As for Joey and Galen... Joey and Galen are Jean's nephew and niece. They are the children of Jean's sister, Sarah. 
We saw Sarah in a one-shot ages ago where Atuma turned her into a blue mer person because he wanted to marry her and it was weird. She was also the character that Chris Claremont was petitioning to have take Jean's place on X-Factor because he didn't want Jean to be resurrected. Um, unfortunately, she disappeared during the mutant massacre when everyone was chasing down mutants, and it was later revealed she was killed and then semi-resurrected by the phalanx. So these kids have been orphans for a while, and their lives, as much as they have seldom appeared in these comics, have not been great. Like, I made a list. Uh, Jay, would you mind? Alright, so in X-Factor 35, they are captured by Nanny and turned into lost boys and girls. In X-Factor 40, they are freed from Nanny and X-Men 51. Cyclops is playing with them and trying to tease out whether they have mutant powers. In X-Men slash Brood Day of Wrath, they are staying in a hotel with Jean and family. There's this appearance here. And in Uncanny X-Men number 467, they will be killed by Shi'ar Death Commandos alongside the rest of the Greys. Yeah, nothing good ever happens to these kids. Like, the best they can ever really manage is being bystanders when terrible things are happening to other people. So, uh, yeah, the next time we see them, they're, they're gonna die. But for right now, they're just being adorable and distressed. Uh, Elaine, by the way, is staying back at the hotel. I have no idea why John didn't also have the children stay back at the hotel, but, but here we are. Presumably because he thought he was taking them somewhere safer. Yeah, I, I guess so. Uh, but man, this art, you were talking about John Gray being buff, and yes— Nord and Cruz make everybody buff. Like, the Prime Sentinels are these gigantic, muscular, hulking creatures. John Gray himself is really buff. Like, everybody except the children is just astonishingly muscular. So, the Sentinels grab John, and they explain their plan. In addition to killing mutants, they are tracking down potential mutants from mutants' families. Also, they refer to Joey and Galen as John's, quote, grand spawn, which is basically awesome, and I think we should start calling grandchildren that from now on. Fortunately for the Grand Spawn and their grandfather, Nate chooses this moment to show up. Oh, and what an entrance. He is wearing cargo pants, a hippie-looking vest, fingerless gloves, a big cross around his neck, sunglasses, what looks like a cowrie shell necklace in addition to the cross. Like, it's almost as if the comic looked at every trendy look from the 1990s and just gave it all to Nate all at once. Like, I only wish he were wearing Jenkos on top of everything else. Do you? Do you really wish that? Nate Gray and Jenkos? Jay, I wish that so hard. So Joey, Galen, and Roust have, have fled, and Nate promises that he'll find the three kids, which he does, just in time for a prime sentinel to rip through a wall and give chase. There's this really fun scene of Nate carrying all three kids at once, like he's some kind of freaking mama possum, but a mama possum who flies? Right, so a mama possum. Oh, yeah, good point. Uh, it's actually pretty cute. Uh, Galen, the little girl, is just thrilled as their silhouette crosses the moon, saying, Second to the right and straight on till morning. You know, it's fun sometimes just to remember that, like, as much as things are dangerous and terrible and violent all the time in superhero comics, like, parts would also just be wondrous. We're used to superheroes flying around and shit all the time, but, you know, a little girl really wouldn't be, especially one whose mind has been wiped at least once. So they manage to hide under a dock, but Joey is freaking out. He's calling out for his mom, who is, of course, dead. And Nate manages to calm him down with a psychic image of, of Joey's missing teddy bear. Joey, you have to be brave for your sister and for your grandma and grandpa and your Aunt Jean and your bear. Which seems like kind of a mixed tactic to me, because the minute Nate stops concentrating, that bear's going to disappear. Oh, and then the kid's gonna freak out more. Yeah, like, oh, I lost my bear twice, and also giant robot men, and also, Nate, what are you wearing? 
Yeah. So, unfortunately, more Prime Sentinels show up. One of them is immune to Nate's power since it's encountered them before. Um, although I'm not sure how that would work since Nate's powers are primarily, in this context, telekinesis well, and telepathy. So he'd, he'd throw, be throwing things at it. It's immune to having things thrown at it. I guess so. I mean, does that mean if you punch a Prime Sentinel, then the next time you punch it, just nothing happens or your arm falls off? I, like, telekinesis is such a physical force, you know? It's not like electricity or fire or something. Only if you mutant punch it. Oh, okay, so like a regular punch is just fine. So if Wolverine puts his claws back into his hands, then he can punch to his heart's content. Right. Okay, excellent. Nate does telepathically take out the other Prime Sentinel, the one that has not yet been exposed to Nate's powers. And as that Prime Sentinel loses control, all the circuitry just disappears, and it's just a giant, presumably naked, very muscular man. And when Nate realizes that these things are human, that if he kills them, he's killing actual people, he hesitates. At which point, at least apparently, the Prime Sentinels kill everybody in a massive explosion. Of course, what's actually happened is that Nate has realized that he can psychically manipulate these guys if they're human, and he has, um, again, in true Xavier fashion, faked everyone's deaths. Oh, he even faked the death of the fake teddy bear, I assume? I would expect so, yes. So, everybody's okay. Nate has successfully kept John Gray, Galen, and Joey, and Rouse, although Rouse has run off, safe from the Prime Sentinels. He completed Cable's mission— and the Greys, being very kindly grandfatherly types, invite Nate to stay with them. But he says, no, he's still got to recover, his powers are on the fritz, so he's got to go and have more misunderstanding-based fights. Yay. Yay? I think so? I don't know, X-Men is a weird comic. I read it all a while back, and it really varies in quality. Um, I love Nate's friendship with Spider-Man. Uh, I am interested by Threnody. A lot of the rest of it left me kind of cold, um, but I kind of get it. I like, I get why people like Nate Gray. Like putting myself in a '90s mindset, yeah, I can dig it. What defines a '90s mindset? Uh, when everything is very cool and it has to be very cool, and you can only earnestly like things if they're extreme enough. I see. So there we go. That is what Nathan and Nate were up to during Operation Zero Tolerance. Not terribly central to the plot. But, you know, I don't mind that. I don't mind that there's this big event going on, and it intersects with all the different characters' lives in different ways, in ways that fit their own role in the X-Universe. So that's what they're up to. As for everyone else, you've got questions. Compelled Infidel asks on Tumblr, How likely do you think the inevitable MCUing of the X-Men is to cause the comics to revert to pre-Krakoa dynamics? You know, that's something I think a lot about. That's a really good question. I think the facile answer is that it depends on what the MCU does. Oh, it totally does. But I would be very surprised if the MCU went straight to Krakoa, because so much of the current Krakoan era is predicated on knowing the standard story of the X-Men. You know, the Xavier School, being hated and feared, that sort of thing. So, I don't know. I mean, I do worry about this, and there certainly is precedent. Like, the X-Men Forever comic, which, boy howdy, we'll get to that someday, did make Toad slimy and tongue-y and Mystique scaly like in the first X-Men movie, although only some of those changes stuck. But I really can't imagine whatever any X-Men movies do altering the X-Men comics universe in really big ways. Like, we mainly see books heavily shift when the movies are way better received than the comics that they're based on. Like, I mean, Guardians of the Galaxy? Seriously, the old comics Guardians of the Galaxy was so different from how they are now, and I think how they are now is, overall, a lot more fun. 
Yeah, I think that's a really, really excellent point. So I think we can we can expect some some changes to fairly definitely happen. So for instance, um, whatever X characters end up central in the movies are probably going to become a bigger deal in the comics. Yeah, and if that involves resurrecting some dead characters, well, A, that's not a big deal in Krakoa, and B, whatever, superhero comics do that all the time. So yeah, we'll just see Lifeguard and Slipstream have a much bigger role in the comics again. Uh, but seriously, I don't know that I see it changing things much. Um, if you look at the Spider-Man movies right now, that's a very different version of Peter Parker in a lot of ways than the Spider-Man we've seen in the comics, and the comics one didn't really shift very much at all. Or, you know, going in the other direction, the snap that was like the biggest event in the MCU, that hasn't come to the comics. We've had little bits of it in the old Infinity Gauntlet stories with Thanos and death and stuff, but not something that's so universe-defining as it was in the MCU. So if the comics alter a little bit so that people who like the new movies can see characters that they enjoyed, that's fine. As for the Krakoan era, I don't know. I really still don't think that era can last forever. I mean, you can only have things go right for so long, you know? Multiple Polarity Havoc asks on Tumblr, How often do you incorporate your headcanon of character ages when talking about stories? As seldom as possible. Um, so I try to keep in mind that this stuff is inconsistent between eras, between creators, and between runs, and that's not even bearing in mind the larger sort of incredibly, incredibly slippery passage of time and, and sense of aging in the Marvel Universe. So, I mean, part of what we do here is look at the X-Men in context of their ongoing c continuity, but we also try our best to take each story as it comes and to be aware of the inconsistencies that situate it relative to its neighbors. So, so again, I, I try not to have an overarching headcanon about relative age because I find that that detracts from the stories that are, are being told, you know, outside of that. Yeah, the only time that really ever bugs me is when a major change thoroughly alters, like, the dynamic between two characters. Um, and even then, it's only a temporary problem, because with this sort of thing, you really do have to repeat to yourself, it's just a show and you should really just relax. Like, it's never gonna work right, and if you try to make it work right, down that path lies madness. And with that, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode alongside original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please, rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, it's Hawk Talk, and in two weeks, Operation Zero Tolerance hits Generation X. This time, officially. Officially.